If you follow the housing debate, you're probably familiar with competing arguments about how or to what extent the housing market itself can help build us out of a crisis. Local governments will often use whatever levers are available to them to encourage new developments to include affordable housing or rental units. And while this may help provide housing for some who might otherwise struggle to find it, there are questions about how long these units will stay affordable, whether it's enough to make a serious dent in the housing crisis, or even how affordable they really are. Many housing advocates say housing removed from the pressures and uncertainty of the housing market would go a lot further towards securing affordable housing for those who need it and ensuring it remains affordable for generations to come. It's something that the Balanced Supply of Housing Node, a partnership of researchers and community organizations working towards identifying solutions to the housing crisis, is actively exploring. What role does non-market housing play in combating the ongoing housing crisis? This is The Overhead, Understanding Canada's Affordable Housing Crisis. In this four-part special presentation, we will examine approaches to reimagining the urban housing landscape in Canada to ensure everyone has access to a decent, affordable roof over their head. I'm Glenn Bowerman. Let's get into it. Cliff Grant is Director of Strategic Relations at the Aboriginal Housing Management Association in British Columbia. He speaks to the role non-market housing plays in realizing truth and reconciliation efforts. What are some of the, the major things that the association is working on currently? Well, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> <laughs> because we just launched a strategic plan mm-hmm. um, in urban, rural, and northern Indigenous Housing Strategic Plan for BC. And so we we put together a very inclusive team, an Indigenous Advisory Council that included Indigenous folks within the government, provincial, Mm -hmm. federal. We had CMHC on board. We had BC Housing. We had BC Nonprofit Housing Association. We had Health Canada and folks from the AFN approach to gaining autonomy on the on-reserve housing front. So they're called the First Nations Housing Infrastructure Council of BC. So it was a very inclusive team that we had put together to ensure that the strategy was going in the right path, in the right direction. So we had started about a year ago, and we had just launched it in January. And now we're in the process of, of sharing it, and I'm presenting it right across Canada. And we're looking for, for support for the strategy and hoping that something comes out in the budget in terms of increasing the numbers of urban Indigenous safe, healthy, affordable housing in BC. Uh, a lot of folks don't realize, but a lot of most First Nations people don't live on reserve. Mm-hmm. They live off reserve. And there's many reasons. One, the lack of housing on reserve. And two, the lack of employment opportunities. 
So there's this migration to the urban centers to look for work, economic prosperity, and housing. So we find ourselves in a situation where we have more and more people working towards moving to the urban centers. We are very, very underrepresented uh, in terms of the number of units per First Nations in BC that are living off reserve. Mm -hmm. And we look at the full continuum from homelessness to home ownership. And right now we're working very diligently on, on the homelessness to getting safe, healthy, affordable housing available. But we have very little in the way of those folks moving out of subsidized units mm -hmm. into a home ownership place for their for their family. So these are some of the things that we're looking at. Another thing that just came up, well, it's come up a few times, and um, we're just doing a little bit of homework on it right now, but we know of one Indigenous co-op that is out in, in Ontario. Mm -hmm. And we're just in the process of reaching out to find out the process pros and cons of, of, of the opportunities for home ownership in the way of a co-op mm -hmm. uh, as a step towards home ownership. So we're looking at all opportunities. The whole idea, though, is in the spirit of reconciliation, we're looking at autonomy. We are Indigenous. We look at the for Indigenous, by Indigenous approach. Mm -hmm. We're the experts in this. So why not let us manage it? as opposed to reporting to the province or the feds. So we're looking for autonomy in the way of having AMA report directly to the minister and not to BC Housing. And we'll make the decisions based on our work and our knowledge in terms of working with different municipalities and looking at the data, uh, data-driven process in terms of priorities across the province. In this episode, we're, we're specifically examining the role that non-market housing plays in trying to address the housing crisis across the country. So in the work of the Aboriginal Housing Management Association, what is the significance of, of non-market housing to the work you do, either maintaining existing stock or repairing it, if the need may be, or uh, trying to find ways to uh, build new non-market housing? Well, we're working on both fronts. Right. We have a considerable amount of bricks and mortar, if you will, on the ground. Um, some of it is, is getting on in age and it does need repair. We have a whole team on our asset strategy side that are looking at data-driven approach in terms of our ask, given that we have X amount of units that are in disrepair, and this is the kind of money it's going to take to get them up to that minimum standard mm -hmm. and give them say, another 15 years of life. We're also looking at redevelopment because some of the units that we have, there's no sense in, in putting a whole bunch of, of, of financial support in continually renovating the asset rather than this particular asset would need a teardown and a whole new redevelopment because the land is already paid for in that aspect, so you're, you're not having to pay for the land. But you're also able to build in the way to increase the efficiency of the unit mm -hmm. in terms of energy efficiency and also to increase the density so we're able to provide more units for more people. So 
we're working on both fronts. One, the strategy to maintain current assets. Mm-hmm. And two, again, looking at the data, a lot of which comes out of the municipalities' housing needs assessments. And again, some of the municipalities have done an incredible job of breaking out the data on the Indigenous front, i.e. how many Indigenous folks are homeless, what are the age groups that need support, whether they're youth aging out of care, elders, for example, and some haven't even touched it. So the data might be weak, but it might be for certain reasons because certain communities don't have a lot of First Nations living in them. Let's keep in mind that we have 203 or 204 First Nations in BC, many of them which are remote um, with inadequate housing, so they have to move to the urban centers. And that's where we come in and looking at being able to provide them with safe, healthy, affordable housing. And a lot of them need that subsidized unit. And there's many reasons for that. Residential school fallout is a, is a big reason for that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of 60 scoop folks. There's a lot of challenges that have happened because of the residential school experience. And a lot of that led to poor decisions, poor health, and just a need for education um, and an opportunity to actually gain that educational foundation in order to gain, you know, good employment in order to provide for a family. Right. So, you know, the the housing market being what it is, it sounds like non-market housing plays a significant role in your hopes for the, the housing strategy for Indigenous people. Oh, definitely. And if you go to our website, there's a shout out to all folks out there. Um, if you go to AMA, the Aboriginal Housing Management Association website, the first document you see, it's so simple, is the actual strategy. Mm-hmm. And it's a good read. Lots of data, a lot of infographics. It makes it easy to read and understand. And then immediately under that, there's another button on where you can endorse the product. So you're showing support of the actual strategy. And I guess there's strength in numbers. So the more people that are able to take a few minutes and, and, and give it a good read and, and endorse the product, we'd be tickled to get that kind of support that we're looking for. And again, right now, that's where we're that's where we're at in terms of sharing, you know, the product that we've developed in terms of the strategy, and in hopes that we gain autonomy and be able to come with the uh, for indigenous by indigenous approach to urban, rural, and northern housing. Now. Let's go to three people working in the Kensington Market and Chinatown neighborhoods of Toronto. My name is Chi Tam. My pronouns are she and her. I am an urban planner and I support multiple community land trust projects. Most of my time is spent with Kensington Market Community Land Trust. But concurrently, they are supporting and also via my research projects with Kuni Kamizaki and with Susanna Bunce. We are working on a project called Who Owns Chinatown and our agitating towards incorporating a new Chinatown community land trust on the other side of Spadina. My name is Kevin Barrett. I have lived and or worked in and around Kensington Market for about 30 years. And uh, I do have a background in working in the nonprofit housing sector, but I'm actually a full-time freelance musician and have been for about 
25 of those years, but I'm here because I'm the co-chair, volunteer co-chair of the Kensington Market Community Land Trust. My name is Dominique Russell, and I'm Kevin's co-chair of the Kensington Market Community Land Trust. In 2021, the Kensington Market Community Land Trust was able, with the help of the city and private donations, to secure a building within that iconic neighborhood as affordable, non-market housing for years to come. So it seems like your focus is mostly in the acquiring of property for the purposes of of non-market housing. If I'll jump in, that's certainly, I mean, that's why it's called a land trust. I mean, obviously there are other very important housing related activities that we're involved in, but the, but structurally we exist, yes, to acquire property first and foremost, to take it out of the market and to hold it in trust for the benefit of the community. That's what our letters patents say. That's what the idea of a community land trust is. I get the sense, though, that the question was implying, are we creating net new units and developing housing, or are we simply protecting existing stock? And actually, we do both and more, I would say. In in terms of finding new stock, what avenues are you pursuing there? Kevin, you want to talk about the parking lot? <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting. One of the very first activities that we got involved in after incorporating the land trust was to focus our sights on the Bellevue parking lot, which is, um, you know, a large municipally owned green pea parking lot right in the heart of Kensington Market was described by the former city councillor of the area as the largest underutilized piece of land in Kensington Market. So we had a vision for that, that it could serve the community better through some combination of affordable housing and community space. We sponsored a a broad community consultation, including a big one-day visioning session for the neighborhood to look at that site and what could be done with it and then approach the city and over the last couple of years have pushed the city, first of all, to uh, start some exploration into the use of that project and ultimately now we are the city is intending to release a request for proposals for a nonprofit provider to redevelop that site as new affordable housing and with some community space and so we're we're very excited about that and we're now waiting for the release of that request for proposals in the hope that we can become the successful proponent so that's the main one we've looked at other options but the truth is in our neighborhood there's not a lot of opportunity for new construction In terms of protecting existing stock and appropriating it for non-market housing purposes, the headline news last year was was a significant win by the Kensington Land Trust. You you managed to acquire a multi-unit property with, I imagine, a a lot of door knocking and a lot of letter writing and uh, and and some help from financial help from the city. Briefly, uh, can you tell me the story of that for our listeners? Sure, we found out that there was uh, an important building in Kensington Market that was on the market. And we'd been keeping our eye on, uh, as Kevin said, there's not that many properties that are multi-unit in the market. But unfortunately, we when we did discover it, there was an offer on the table. But very luckily, that offer fell through. And we uh, have a very supportive city councillor And also uh, an angel investor, because all of this, one of the difficulties is of actually putting in an offer and, you know, being in play requires large sums of money. So we were able to to get a loan, a long-term loan from, from a community member that allowed us to put the offer on the table and then 
very quickly get the financing together. I mean, it was, it was an astonishingly quick turnaround. And part of that seems like a miracle, but also it's the planning that went into it before and the support from our partners that allowed us, for example, to, uh, to hire GE as a project manager, because we wouldn't have been able to do that without the support of U of T's affordable housing project and the School of Cities and other partnerships. I think Kevin can and she can fill in more because that's the bare bones of the story. I mean, I'll jump in. She, there's, there's many parts of it. Um, D- Dominique knows some of the history even better than me, but part of the significant part of that story is that there's a long history of organizing in Kensington, organizing against greedy and bad landlords and trying to control some of the out-of-control real estate development that happens. And it's actually part of that work that is the backstory to this our big sister organization, Friends of Kensington Market, was very involved along with Mike Layton, our city councillor, in um, fighting back an attempt to renovict all the tenants in that building three years previously. And it was that history with the tenants and the and the fact that while a lot a couple of people lost their housing, for the most part, that effort was successful in stopping a egregious landlord from tr- taking over the place and keeping that relationship with the tenants that provided some of the base, both with a, in terms of a relationship with the tenants and a relationship with our city councillor that were in place so that we could move quickly when we found this building was on on the market. And then through some r- remarkably quick move at City Hall to provide some funding, some great support from the Affordable Housing Challenge Project at U of T and people in the neighborhood, uh, we were able to put that deal together. And so the the units in this building will be uh, affordable units. I think you you have a sort of agreement with the city uh, and with a chance to renew in, in the future. Is that kind of how it works? We, we received a, a long-term loan from the city of $3 million, which was a significant part of how we were able to finance the purchase. The terms of that loan are that that money is forgivable at a rate of 1% a year over 99 years as long as the rent profile of the building stays affordable within city's definition of affordability. Specifically, we have to keep it at or below 80% of the average market rent for the area. So in that way, I mean, first and foremost, I would say the raison d'etre and the articles patent of our organization are very clear in terms of what we stand for and what we will do. But we have that checker balance built into the financing so that the building has to stay affordable in the long term, which is exactly what we wanted. Mm -hmm. I will say that just knowing the spacing audience, there are like some angles that I've thought like for a long time about the acquisition and how we made this possible that I feel are extremely unique in even the community land trust sector. Mm -hmm. So in the landscape of Canadian community land trusts, who we are fairly well connected to and talk to talk shop with others all the time in terms of tenant direct action takeovers. Yeah, that's definitely a huge first. I have not seen a tenant union tenant organizing to purchase action in a way that is so direct, like our story. And I think it's actually a replicable example, especially for really bad landlord um, situations to buy out the landlords that are misbehaving in the, to that degree. The second is that like it's, a, it's the first mixed-use acquisition for a community land trust, a democratically governed neighborhood-based uh, land trust organization. And 
that was significant in terms of like how that interacts with the housing above with, with having the stores below their rents are at very different rates their rent control legislation is extremely different it gives us extremely different access to property tax uh, implications to CMHC housing funding to housing grants in general is mixed use building types like a something that housing organizations need to think more carefully about and it can this be recoverable it it was inevitable that we would be doing a mixed use project because it's the nature of Kensington Chinatown that like everything is mixed use in our neighborhood so in order to preserve housing it would have had to be like that in in this sense and that may be true for other really acute downtown contexts in other Canadian cities and i just find that really fascinating absolutely i i think it's safe to say that the housing crisis touches uh, all canadian cities to various degrees and a lot of solutions for this are are thrown out and it's probably uh, going to require a holistic mix but i was hoping that you could speak specifically to the role that non-market housing plays in keeping a roof over people's head making sure that everyone has access to some kind of safe affordable housing i don't, I don't mind starting on that one um, for me i mean i'll i'll be a little blunt about this i mean the market's the problem mhm the problem is in a, in a culture and an economy where housing is first and foremost a commodity to buy and sell, not first and foremost a human right or a need. I mean, that's the root of the problem, baldly, as far as I'm concerned. So, so while you're absolutely right in the short and medium term, there's no way we're going to house the population of Canada without a pretty broad range of initiatives. Ultimately, I don't think this economy will ever adequately house its citizens when housing is first and foremost a commodity. People are trying to make money off housing. That's always going to be at odds with what housing is for. So for me, it's all about focusing on our market housing, finding ways to get residential properties out of the market so that we can keep them affordable and keep them serving the community, not serving profit interests. Uh, and I've, I've fundamentally believe that as a starting point. That's my motivation for being part of the land trust. Also at this point in the housing crisis, with the data that we have and with our understanding of how exactly private housing supply has not succeeded in the past couple decades, the demand is too elastic given that the people who are buying the private supply of housing have an unlimited capacity to purchase it. The REITs, the investment funds, pension-backed funds, like just large corporate landlords that are that do not have a human relationship in community, there is no amount of supply you could generate, even if you can magically build that fast, mm -hmm. that would actually end up benefiting or even getting close to lowering the price. The amount of supply you would have to create in Canada to overwhelm the amount of demand, given the financialization of housing and how acute it is now, is actually impossible to sort of create this like magical invisible hand where like there's enough supply that it would actually drive down rental or home ownership prices for people. Like this is, this is like a myth. This is like the worst lie that the private 
development market is telling Canadians. And it's just so not true. Uh, and it's just, it's infuriating. It's infuriating. And so the only solution then is to guarantee that there is some supply that will, cannot be invested in, in that way. Um, you have to create social, public, non-market, community-owned, you know, all of this range that we call non-market housing in order to give people a shot at actually being able to afford and directly afford in, in, in like a price way their housing and live <laughs> in this world. <laughs> I'd add as well that if if the federal government's investments in the 70s in housing had not gone into developers and had gone into land trusts, we would not be facing the types of evictions that we're seeing in places like Heron Gate, where, you know, affordable housing is just being destroyed. That's where I grew up. And I think that's happening. 30 years seems like a long time, but it's not. And so what we're facing now is that investment is gone into private hands. So the investment that governments make in land trusts is investment that lasts forever, as opposed to being able to be turned over and turned to a profit. So I think that that's a, a, a cautionary tale as well that we need to learn from the history of what's happened across Canada. In in talking of the challenge of acquiring non-market housing or or, or building new non-market housing, I mean, Kensington Market and Chinatown are iconic neighborhoods for listeners who don't live in Toronto. Very cool, very desirable, and and rapidly gentrifying in various ways. So I imagine part of the challenge for for what you all do is a little bit of a racing against time. We all wish we had a time machine and we could go back, you know, 15 years and, and buy it. Or, you know, that the, I know that the church owned a lot of the buildings around and they're wishing that they had bought up, you know, that they hadn't sold and the, the synagogue would have liked to have, you know, bought buildings, uh, houses so that their members could stay in the community. But we are in a race against time, yeah. There's a, a couple of things we've spoken about already that, that point to exactly to that. I, I think, uh, you know, first of all, just the nature of the real estate market at the moment, it's so hot that you got to be able to move very quickly. I mean, first, first of all, I suppose the idea of creating non-market housing, we don't have any choice but to start in the market. We've got to be able to play in the market and take that property out. And to do that, you've got to be able to compete with the big boys who got endless amounts of capital and can jump in and move really quickly. We're facing a similar race against time with the project on the Bellevue parking lot that we discussed earlier, because like any municipal project, it takes a long time to get that up on wheels. And at this point, construction costs are rising rapidly. So the longer it waits, the more expensive it's going to get and the harder it's going to be to create a, a good supply of housing that we can keep affordable over the long term, just because, as I say, if we'd done it a year ago, it would have been more affordable than now. So there's a number of ways in which that's very true. It also feels like you're just constantly racing against everybody's individual family timelines and like household timelines. We're losing neighbors, like we're, we're losing people that we would have built the relationships with in community to have the capacity to do this together. Like, just knocking on the door next door and like convincing the tenant next to you that, hey, we're going to resist the eviction. Do they have the energy to do that? Are, is this already the fifth time they've been burned in Toronto? Do they just want to give up on the neighborhood and just and just quit it and move somewhere else entirely? Like that just keeps on happening in Chinatown's version, specific version of it. Like you have 
really aggressive real estate solicitations doing land assemblies with family associations that are hundred year old organizations that used to have huge memberships and people paying membership dues and they have aging members, younger, younger folks in cultural community aren't staying a part of these associations. And it's very tempting to sell off these buildings that are hundreds of years old that need a lot of love and care and maintenance and investment in them to retain them as community assets. So like really it feels like you're racing against like how much the market is destroying the soul of your community relationships as well. That's the really heartbreaking part. Every level of government, every major party talks about affordability. Um, We're going to have uh, multiple consultations with the public, as they say, at the provincial level and then municipally. And we also have a minority federal government who should be listening uh, to to the people who could very well be going back to the polls to uh, <laughs> decide if they stay or go. I'm wondering if if anyone is talking about a sort of streamlined way to fund community land trust projects in Canadian cities from the various level levels of government. Is that something you're advocating for? Is that something that uh, if you are advocating that uh, you're being heard on, on any level. Yeah, it does feel like there are advocacy campaigns and lots of different bodies working in many different dimensions of how you would assist the capital stack of all these different citizen-led grassroots community land trusts trying to buy out their landlords in their neighborhood. The first is that there is no provincial program, the housing program period in Ontario. And I feel like there are many different housing groups that are very aligned on that. So that's a very different starting line compared to obviously we have now enough experience and the Mura program, the multi-unit residential acquisition program from the city of Toronto has been modeled off of the acquisition success in Parkdale that Parkdale then taught us how to do. And then the city has now officially said, okay, let's create a program modeled after these two community land trusts. And based on that, the city is sort of putting a very small amount of money into that program as a demonstration to other levels of government and other municipalities to say, this is the kind of thing that we made possible. We have a very small pot of money. You should match it. You should match it with a huge program that is federal, that is provincial, and that is like permeates regional economies all throughout, all throughout the lands. And so, yeah, we do see that. And, and in the private sense of like self financing, um, we have all sorts of very interesting social investment, impact investment groups who are currently actively doing research, working with us on what would it look like to expand and scale other financing mechanisms like impact investment funds so that we could do it independently of government uh, assistance and also community bond structures that would assist that sort of thing as well. I think there's a small piece of that just in terms of the beginning of your question too that that is relatively simple. We've certainly spoken to CMHC. Well, first of all, I think that the mural program that we may talk more about and that she intimated certainly recognizes this. And we've had some conversations with CMHC about the piece I spoke about, about the need to move quickly in a real estate market, and that in fact, across the need for all those kinds of programs and financing options, and frankly, big money to be able to acquire housing, governments could, with a relatively small and rotating fund of capital, help groups like ours in really significant ways by being able to get access to the kind of money you need up front to get in and get a building that money to put a deposit in do do the kind of due diligence research that you need to do to be able to compete and maybe acquire a building that comes on the market there are certainly are lots of properties around that if we if you own them you can operate them 
Mm-hmm. The rents will cover the operating costs, and with some responsible management and some expertise, you can keep it afloat. It's getting in. And so I we've made the case to CMHC numerous times. If if there was just a pot of money where we could get, I don't know, a few hundred grand on a short-term basis to get in there, we'll pay you back. Once the building's up and running, that becomes part of the, of the pro forma and, and we, and we do it. So there's, there's small things like that as well as big picture financing options that I think governments can play a really significant role in. But it's been really hard to get the dialogue to the point where politicians understand the importance of preserving existing affordable housing. Like the conversation for still now, we could say, is mainly like, how do we build more new affordable units while the bucket is leaking so hard? Like, that's what Parkdale has been championing for a long time. It's like, it's a freaking leaking bucket. It's a hemorrhaging bucket. And you're losing these private, you know, quiet rooms and units all over cities, all over the place that have long-term tenants in them that are still paying a rent-controlled amount that they started paying 40 years ago. And those units should be protected and they're about to get evicted en masse. And they have been being evicted en masse. So I think like just even getting governments to the point where they actually understand, oh, there are existing affordable units that we need to protect. We can't just keep on building new supply, quote unquote, into oblivion for nothing. Yeah, that's that's a new thing. And I feel like we're just cresting that wave with this latest round of uh, housing policy advocacy. And the the new supply, the new affordable supply that is being built, sometimes there is a question mark uh, about for how long it will remain affordable. <laughs> yeah, it is ridiculous. Like what, 40 years guaranteed only and you get three units out of like a five-story development that goes up around your block? It was ridiculous. There's a really important argument about the what the investment, like where the government is investing and where that money goes and how long it lasts. And the fact that the, the these investments into affordability are short term and are turned for a profit to developers that then say, oh, we need to build more. We need to build more. We can't build to infinity. And as Chi said, especially when we're, we're losing so many units, so many people. The other thing I don't understand why governments don't understand more is the sort of the waste that is overturning people's lives. Chi mentioned the fact that it, you know, it removes the soul from neighborhoods, but it's just, it's not an efficient use of people's talents and particularly young people's, you know, they're starting out and they're spending they're so much time just fighting for the basic ability to live somewhere in in a city. And and what we're facing is as it goes across Canada, as you leave Toronto and then you go to Montreal and then you get Victor Montreal, like it's everywhere. So we need to start to think about what, you know, what it means in terms of loss of productivity to spend so much time on those basic things. You all mentioned the uh, the Mira program. Uh, that's uh, the City of Toronto's multi-unit residential acquisition program. First of all, something like that seems to be uh, at least a tentative stamp of approval for the work that uh, you're all doing in, in other uh, land trust uh, projects across the city. That that seems to represent a sig- significant amount of buy-in. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm, I'm seeing nodding heads. Yeah, well, <laughs> confirming I, that it is indeed. Yeah, I, I was I was pointing to Chi, who has some in some ways some more is more conversant with the history of this. But I think you're absolutely right. And the tr- and the truth is, the city approached people in our sector and consulted pretty heavily in terms of designing that program. And it absolutely is recognizing that groups like ours have a sig- very significant contribution to play both in developing and preserving affordable housing, but also keeping housing affordable in the long term, as, Dom- as Dominique has spoken to so articulately. And that program is, is quite clearly recognizing that there's real value in the kind of work that we're doing. So we're pretty happy about that. I have to imagine as well that uh, the existence of a program like this may convince people in other communities who were maybe uh, kicking the tires of, of creating something similar to the Kensington Land Trust or the Parkdale Land Trust knowing that that uh, programs like this exist might might convince them to actually go ahead with uh, similar projects i think the the one of the things is the part of our mandate is precisely to be part of a movement to show the success of one thing that can then lead to success of other places and and that you know building together some cities and some neighborhoods not in Toronto, but, you know, some places are in a position where they can be ahead of the, of the wave. And so it's really exciting for us. And it's part of our mandate to provide as much support as we can to other neighborhoods and groups that want to be creating long-term affordable housing in perpetuity. I think that that's a really important what people are starting to understand. And I think the Mira program, it's exciting that there's so much response. We need more money. It's a very small amount of money. We need more and we need the city to, to really crow off the rooftops at the success of this program so that then other cities can, can get on board. Because I think it's, I don't, I don't want to use the language of, of the market, but ultimately it is the best investment for our collective tax dollars to invest in affordability that is forever in the community. The alternative is to invest short term to the interest of a few. Why does that make sense to invest what is collective into the private? Affordability has become the great promise of just about every politician. There are all sorts of solutions being proposed, and many involve fixing the housing market itself. Whether or not that's possible will be the subject of our next episode. In the meantime, one guaranteed solution for providing affordable housing is removing housing itself from the volatility of the market. Land trusts, co-ops, and social housing are all proven tools available to any level of government who wants to make a real investment in the future of housing. Thank you for listening to The Overhead. This podcast is a co-production of Spacing Radio and the Balanced Supply of Housing Node. The Node is bridging gaps between research evidence and housing outcomes so everyone in Canada is able to access adequate housing and shelter in our neighbourhoods and communities. The Balanced Supply of Housing Node is part of the Collaborative Housing Research Network, a joint initiative between the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. Special thanks to the University of Toronto's Susanna Bunce for help facilitating the Kensington Land Trust panel.
This podcast was produced by myself, Glenn Bowerman, and Neil Hinchley. Original music composed by Neil Hinchley. Tune into part three of The Overhead in June when we look at fixing the housing market. That are be easy.